0: investing in syndications can be a daunting task wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary how can you be confident in what you are doing steve sue one of the founders of lfi just published a book called avoiding rookie errors as a left field investor 20 lessons learned from 14 years of passive investing in private syndications this is the best passive investing book I've read. It's easy to read. It's chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. Whether you're a first time passive investor or a veteran, you can learn from these lessons. You got to read this book. Get the link to avoiding rookie errors as a left field investor on our website today at www.leftfieldinvestors.com. Have a deal in mind and a group of investors ready to go? Use TribeVest to pool your capital together through a multi-member LLC. TribeVest has streamlined the group investment process, making it easy, quick, and safe to do business with others. Start a tribe and invite your partners to join. Then you can use the platform to collaborate with your partners, pool capital, and manage your joint investments. I'm in 12 tribes myself. It is a great way to learn from others, spread risk, and get into deals at lower minimums. Go to tribevest.com to get started today. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us LFI.
1: That's one of the beautiful things about real estate. I think it was Cameron Harold who said this initially, but you practice R&D. In in corporate world, that's research and development. Well, in real estate, it's rip off and duplicate. Just find find somebody who's already successful at what you want to do and just learn and copy what they do and go execute. And that was the beauty of it. That was one of the main reasons we were able to persist. We knew it would work if we persisted.
0: Hello, left fielders. Welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently.
1: Let's go. This is Jeremy Roll, and you're listening to the Pass Investing from Left Field podcast.
0: I'm really excited today to have Andrew Cushman with us. He is the founder and principal of Vantage Point Acquisitions. It's a firm focused on multifamily apartments, mainly in the southeast. Andrew is a former chemical engineer who found real estate in 2007 and left his corporate position to start a business in real estate, starting off by flipping single family properties in Southern California, transitioning to multifamily acquisitions, which he does now. And he's successfully syndicated and repositioned over 2,600 multifamily. multifamily units. Andrew, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast.
1: Thanks, Jim. Good to be here.
0: Well, it's been a long time coming because I know I've uh, kind of canceled on you a couple of times. I appreciate your patience getting into it. The the first thing I want to ask is if you can tell us about your journey. How did you get into real estate? I know you went from flipping houses to syndication, but how did you make that whole transition? So kind of start at the beginning and, and lead us through your journey.
1: Yeah, like uh, half the people in real estate, um, I uh, got an engineering degree in order to uh, get into the real estate business. Uh, The reason for that was when I was a kid, I was very entrepreneurial, just out like mowing people's grass and trying to whatever I could do to to make money. I always knew I wanted to own my own business, but I didn't know how. So I figured, well, if I get an engineering degree, I at least have a good job, good income, and I can tolerate it until I figure out what I'm going to do. So uh, I met and married my wife who had the same kind of mindset and we tried all kinds of little businesses, vending and flipping cars and all this stuff. And every one of them was like, okay, this is either going to take really long time to scale or it's just going to be another job. Uh, and I mean, we made a little bit of money each time, but nothing really seemed like, okay, this is it. And then in 2006, we discovered flipping houses and uh, Southern California, great place uh, to flip houses, tons of equity here. And so uh, we said, all right, this is something we think we can do. And at the time, the main the way to do that was we were call, cold calling people who were in pre-foreclosure. So they'd stopped paying their mortgage and the lender had said, hey, we're going to take the house in 90 days uh, if you don't do something. And so as an engineer who wasn't the strongest at communication. Um, I found out later when my wife would call me when we were dating, she would make a list to keep the conversation going because I was so bad at like actually, and this was somebody I was really interested in, right? So what do I do? I go into a business that depends on me cold calling strangers and saying, hey, let's talk about your financial problems, right? I mean, they're not exactly excited about my call. So it took me 4,576 phone calls to get our first deal. However... When we flipped that first deal, it was a condo, we made as much money as I made all year at my engineering job. And we said, okay, this is it. So I quit uh, and my engineering job went full-time into flipping. My wife joined me two years later full-time. We flipped for a few years. It was great, Uh, we made good money, but we realized, okay, this is also kind of another job. And the way we had built it, it all depended on us. And we said, well, 2009, 2010 were really good years. And we said, well, what what's the next big thing? And then what scales really well? And we said, we reasoned that, okay, we just had a huge recession, which means we're probably going to have a long expansion, which means job creation, household formation, etc. And Everybody in their mother either got foreclosed on and can't buy a house for the next seven years or knows somebody who got foreclosed on and is scared to buy a house for the next seven years. So that means <laughs> there's gonna be a ton of people entering the rental pool. Let's go figure out apartments. Um, so we found a mentor, hired the guy. Uh, he held our hand through our first deal, which was 92 units on the other side of the country in Macon, Georgia. And uh, that was 2011. We went into apartment syndication full-time. So I guess we've been doing it full-time for 12 years now. Uh, a little over 2,700 units, and uh, it's been a fantastic uh, journey and a fantastic business. So,
0: Well, that, that, that's a great story. And I want to circle back 4,576 calls. Yeah. How do you How do you not get discouraged? How do you make the, like I get it, you make the first call, you make the 100th call, maybe you even make the 1,000th call, but how do you know that something, how do you keep going?
1: I did what get was dis- in it? Yeah, I did get discouraged. Don't you I mean? You're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head. However, um, my wife and I really believe that this was probably going to be our best shot at a successful business. And you know, that's that's a good question. Like, well, you know, when? Because I say one of my superpowers is relentless persistence. Like, just go until I until I make it happen. However, the flip side of that is is you know, when are you when should there is a point where quitting makes sense because you're doing something that doesn't work or that is is wrong or whatever. Well, we knew other people that were successfully flipping. And so we knew that there wasn't anything wrong with the system or the asset. What needed to be worked on was me. And I can work on that. That's something I can control. So it was just a matter of if if I learn to do this, if I learn to execute, it will work. So that, and then of course I had my, my wife, you know, supporting me and, and, and we were working together and, you know, I would get off the phone, she would sit there and listen and, and I'd get off the phone and she'd be like, okay, honey, that was good, but maybe next time say it this way, you know? Um, right. So she was like my in-house coach. So it was just that, you know, the number one, the desire and the drive to make it happen, but then also knowing that we were working on a proven system. It wasn't just some idea that we had for an app and maybe people like it, maybe they don't. You know that was one of the beautiful. That's one of the beautiful things about real estate. I think it was Cameron Harold, Cameron Harold, who said this initially. But you practice R and D in in corporate world. That's research and development. Well, in real estate, it's rip off and duplicate. Just find a, just find somebody who's already successful at what you want to do, and just learn and copy what they do, and go execute. And that was the beauty of it. Um. So that's how. That was one of the main reasons we were able to persist, is we knew it would work if we persisted.
0: Right. I love that because what it also shows, we talk a lot in left field investors about the power of community and, you know, network community, it's the same thing. And your network, you had exposure to people who are successful at this. So you knew. It wasn't this, it was you and you needed to improve yourself to be successful. And, and this is the same with passive investing, right? We have a community of LP investors and they can look at other people and say, okay, I know this can work because, you know, we just saw one of our founders, Chad Ackerman, he quit his W2 and he's a full time passive investor now and he did it in five years. So you see that and you're like, okay, I can do that. And that's similar to what you did. Then the, the question is, okay, you, you finally after the 400 4,577th call was the successful one. You did the flip and then you said, I'm out, I'm quitting my job. So my next question is, how did you know you could replicate that without doing another 4,500 calls enough so that you quit your job? It seems like you might've quit your job maybe after you do two or three deals to confirm it works, but you did it after one.
1: Yeah. You know, I didn't know actually. And I think it took another two or 3,000 phone calls because it was six months until the next deal. However, so there was definitely some uncertainty there. Uh, but what we did is, you know, again, I made that one flip. I made my entire year salary. So I said, worst case scenario, I do this for a year. It doesn't work. I go back to my job. I, le- I made sure I left on very good terms. So that, okay. I mean, that's what we reasoned. What is the worst? What is the greatest downside? Well, I'll just go back to where I was. What's the upside? Unlimited. Um, so we made sure that we, we took those proceeds and set that aside. My wife kept her job for two more years. Uh, so that at least we still had some income and, I uh, said, this is our chance to go for it. So either, I mean, it, we had, you know, we did it once and we said, okay, this works. We, now we just had six months of practice. So hopefully it won't take us, you know, 4,500 something calls again. Um, right. it took us more than I hoped, but we eventually got there. Well, that, that's a great story. And then,
0: and then you decided, I mean, the analysis you did to figure out, hey, apartments might be the next thing is is great. I mean, that's seeing into the future, right? So great job on that. And then how did you get the courage? I mean, obviously, you have courage. You did one flip and said, I'm out from your W-2, right? So obviously, you have the courage. But your first deal, 92 units, all not halfway across the country, all the way across the country, right? Mm -hmm. My first multifamily deal was 22 units and that was biting off way more than I could chew. So how did you then get the courage to say, all right, we're going to do a 92 unit apartment and just to make it harder, we'll do it in Georgia?
1: Well, I think it was a combination of being naive and the broker saw a sucker coming from a mile away, (laughs) Uh, particularly California sucker, right? Um, No, I mean, it was... You know, we had already kind of, in a sense, made that transition once jumped from engineering to flipping houses successfully. And, and it's not a direct correlation, but there's certainly certain aspects of it's still real estate. There's renovations, there's certain systems that you learn, um, you're working with contractors, you're working with private investors. So it, it is definitely a different business than multifamily, but there's some correlation, and then second, uh, like I said, we hired a mentor, uh, before we got into a, you know, flipping houses, I think that's a little bit easier for people to kind of figure out on their own multifamily, especially big stuff is an entirely different animal that it's not just real estate. It's a business and it, that business comes with people and, you know, and all kinds of other uh, aspects. And so, uh, we, like I guess we had a mentor who had already done about 800 units and a great guy. I'm actually, we're still, we, we ended up partnering and doing like six deals together. We're still in business, uh, together today, 12 years later. Um, so, you know, but he held our hand and guided us through that whole process. And that is that, that, that was a huge part of it. Well, I would have, we would have never have done that if it was just my wife and I being like, Hey, let's go do apartments. Um, absolutely not. So there's that and, mentor. And so-
0: yeah. And, and mentors help. Right. And again, I don't mean to keep going back to our community, but that's our community is like mm-hmm. one mentor. right? You join it and then then there's a bunch of people you can learn from. And it sounds like you took advantage of that opportunity and then you partner with that person for 12 years. So that's that's really building a relationship. So did that first syndication, that first deal you did, how did that turn out?
1: it was profitable, but it definitely did not go to plan. Um, So it was, this was 2011. So we were still bumping along the bottom of the, you know, the, the, the results of the great financial crisis. So that 92 units was 75% vacant uh, built in the sixties and early seventies and in a low income part of town, right. Stuff that we would never, ever touch now. Like we know, we just, we don't do that kind of stuff. I got a, I got a saying that you know, sea, sea properties tend to look really good on paper, but they almost never work out that way in real life. So, like, I'm I'm I actually get a T-shirt made. I like to say the <laughs> grass is always greener over the septic tank, right? Like, there's a reason they look good on paper, and there's a reason that there's less competition to buy them. Um, so, you know, again, we, uh, but there was there was massive upside to it. Uh, but you know, th- and this that experience is part of what shaped who we are today, both what we do and what we don't do. Uh we ended up selling it for like three times what we paid for it, but in in the meantime, the renovation went 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 way over uh because it was, you know, built in the 60s and neglected for 15 years. So as you're doing renovations, it's like peeling off the layers of a rotten onion. You know, oh, this layer is bad, let's get rid of it. Oh, the one underneath is even worse. Uh, you know, we'd have, we'd, we'd repair stuff and vandals would come in and rip out the copper piping and not even bother to turn off the water. So $50,000 of damage from that. Right. Um, and again, and, you know, and I would, and I don't regret doing it because I probably wouldn't be sitting here having the conversation with you today if we hadn't taken the leap and done it. Um, but it made us realize like, okay, we got to do a better job of creating systems for, you know, estimating and managing renovations. And, um, you know, making sure we're in, you know, areas where the income is high enough to support, you know, elevated rents and in an area where crime is not going to be a problem. And just, you know, all the the, the many things we do for screening today. Um, so, again, it, it was successful in terms of it, it you know, did not hit our pro. I think our pro forma was like a 35 percent IRR. Right. Again, see properties on an Excel spreadsheet. Right. Looks yep. great. Uh, I think our actual was closer to 20 something. But. Uh, you know, so you know, so again, I don't regret it, but it didn't didn't go to definitely didn't go to plan, and um, but we we learned and and adapted, and uh, yeah, you know, a lot of uh, where we are today is is because we took the leap and did that, but that's also part of why I'm pretty gray these days. So,
0: yeah, those C class properties are are complicated. I mean, what what did you do after that? Was that the the worst or the most complicated deal you have done, or was it all gravy after that?
1: Definitely not all gravy after that. so we 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 learned some lessons. We didn't learn quite enough. So the next two the next two deals were uh, a step up I'd call C plus. Uh, those ended up being home runs. Then they were also in Georgia. Then we expanded to Dallas. and this was the next pro- the property I'm about to tell you about uh, is the worst syndication we've ever done. Uh, we've done 20 something syndications, a little over 2,700 units. This is the worst one we've ever done. Uh, we, uh, bought in a, and this, this was the property that the last one before we formally created our screening process, we bought a C-class property built in 1974 in a rough part of South Dallas, huge property, 350 units. Uh, again, lots of deferred maintenance, a chiller system, which means there's one giant air conditioning that runs the entire thing. So guess what? When it's August in Dallas and the chiller system goes down, you don't have one angry, hot, sweaty resident. You have 350. <laughs> and, and if it goes for more than a few hours, you're on the evening news. Um, so we bought a very rough property uh, in a rough part of uh, Dallas and we started doing the renovations, and we got the rent bumps that we wanted, and like, okay, heck, this is actually going pretty well. But what happened is the demographics there were so bad that we'd renovate a unit, we'd release it for a significant amount more, someone would move in. Six months later, despite our screening, they would stop paying rent. When they finally got evicted, they would destroy the unit on the way out, and we, it wasn't just a quick paint and turn. We had to renovate it again every time. Um, never mind <sighs> the ongoing maintenance from pipes breaking underground because they're 45 years old and, and all that. And then one day, uh, someone who was getting evicted because they hadn't paid rent crawled up on top of the leasing office, knocked out the skylights and threw Molotov cocktails through them in an attempt to burn down the leasing office. They didn't burn it down, but they burned it out. Uh, so we had, wow. to, had to redo that. And I remember, so one day walking through units, uh, and again, you know, shooting gunshots were common there. Uh, I was walk, walking through a unit and there's a hole in the drywall and I pried out of it a spent bullet. And I kept that as a reminder that we will never, ever buy that kind of thing again. So what happened with it? Uh, we bought that. I think it was tw- late, either late 2013 or early 2014. I think that was late 2013. And I don't know if you remember, but in 2015, everybody was dead certain a recession was coming in 2016. Um, Kiyosaki even wrote a book about the 2016 crash, right? And so we said, we at that point, we knew enough to say, all right, in a recession, the last kind of property you want to own is a rough C-class property because C-class gets hit the hardest and falls the furthest and has the most delinquency when financial times get difficult. And so we said, you know what? Warren Buffett's number one rule, never lose money. We're just going to you know, let your winner, winner's ride, cut your losers short. We said, we're just going to get out of this while the getting's good. Um, we sold it two and a half years early. Our pro forma was five years. We said, we're going to get out just after two years. We got an offer that let us return 100% of capital. And it was like a six or 7% IRR or something like that. Um, and that, that's, the, that's, that's the worst deal we've ever done. Uh, and we, again, Learned a ton. Like we really step step back and analyzed everything. Like, okay, what went wrong? What went right? What are we never going to do again? And from that deal forward, Jim, is what you know what you said earlier is, oh, has it all been gravy since then? After that deal, basically yes, <laughs> we right. finally learned like what to do and what not to do. Thankfully, again, like we never we've never lost investor money on a syndication or anything like that. Uh, but that that was that was a rough one, um, and we learned a whole lot.
0: Yeah, that's, the, you know, those C class properties, they, they look the numbers, like you said, in Excel. It looks fantastic, right? That you can't lose, but it's the. Constant renovations. Every time someone moves out, they kick in a door, this or that. And those properties, you know, I learned from experience. That's why I'm not a syndicator or a, a active property investor anymore. I just do the passive stuff because, you know, I just wasn't good at managing those C class properties, and I I didn't think of upgrading to B class. I just said I'll let someone else manage my assets for me. Um, so that's that's what I do now. So, what are some of the? You have LP investors, right? You're you're mm-hmm. um you have people investing in these projects. So, what are some of the most common mistakes you see those LP investors making either when they're investing with you or you see some of the other investments
1: they've made? There's there's a lot. Um, You know, I would say one of the most common, and I think people are starting to make this realization a little more now, um, but I would see this a lot the last few years of someone would just be looking at, I don't know, let's say three or four LP investment syndication, uh, opportunities. And let's just, you know, cause compare, you know, apples, and oranges there, let's just say four different apartment, uh, syndications. And they're just be like, well, this one has the highest IRR. I'm going to invest in this one. Well, any sponsor of any kind of syndication, uh, can either, unintentionally or intentionally very easily manipulate the numbers to put on a spreadsheet or to put on a pro forma. Uh, IRR in particular, or a- even even AAR, all someone has to do, again, either just not knowing any better or intentionally as well, you know what, this isn't quite meeting our target, So, hey, if I lower the exit cap rate, 50 basis points, boom, this thing looks like a great deal. And so number one, um, big mistake is shopping just based on IRR. And then let's assume that you're looking at four different investments, and all four of them are by great operators. They're, you know, they're honest, they're trustworthy, they really are trying to do a good job. But also, it seems like a lot of people that I talk to don't understand um, the different the correlations be- uh, that are often present between risk and return that if something has, if two, you know, 2 let's take take two apartment uh, opportunities or syndications and one says, all right, well, this is a 14% IRR. Well, this one's a 17 and a half. Okay, clearly the 17 and a half is better. Maybe, what is what are the risks that are being taken to achieve that higher return? Is it a huge renovation? Is it maybe, maybe that higher one, is it at 80% leverage while the other one's at 55% leverage, right? So if the market turns, which one has a higher risk of loss? Um, you know, is you know, is the, the is there the one that has the higher IR? Maybe there's a uh, mezzanine debt piece on there, or even a preferred equity piece, which many investors don't realize. If you're an LP, that is ahead of you, and effectively, as far as you're concerned, it's debt because it gets paid off before you do. So yeah, their their underlying loan might be 65%. But if they put 20% preferred equity on there, it's 85% leveraged as far as you as an LP is concerned. And what that does is it drives up the internal A rate of return and makes it look even better than you know, it doesn't, it makes the return look great without especially without explaining the risk. So I think that's one of the biggest mistakes people make. It, and again, and it's understandable, right? Most investors are have their own successful business or they're successful doctors, and they, they you know they barely have time as it is. But if you're handing someone 100 grand or whatever that is, those are some key things to understand is what risks are being taken in order to achieve the returns that are being projected because every sponsor and their mother gets on podcasts and say they underwrite conservatively. Clearly, some of them aren't. So that means either they're lying or just don't know any better. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and says say they don't know any better, but yeah, those those are. I mean, I could I could go on and on and on. So I'll I'll stop there yeah. for now.
0: <laughs> no, that that was great. I would like clarification on a couple of things. You mentioned AAR and IRR. Can you explain what those are and the difference? And also, mezzanine debt was another one that maybe you could uh, you could explain out a little bit.
1: Yes, IRR is internal rate of return. What that does is that is it's, it's actually kind of a complicated calculus based function, but it takes the Not only the, like, okay, if you invest $100,000 and you get $5,000 a year for five years, your cash on cash returns 5% for each of five years. What IRR does is it says, well, it factors in the timing of those payments and basically says, well, the earlier you get those payments, the more valuable they are because money is worth more today than it is in the future. So that's kind of why IRR is the gold standard because it lets you compare investments of almost any kind and it factors in the fact that uh, you know ten thousand dollars today is worth more than ten thousand in the future so that's IRR average annual return ignores timing so you could let's say let's say you've got a great investment you invest hundred thousand dollars five years late you've got you get nothing for five years and then five years later you sell it sells and you get two hundred thousand dollars back so your original 100, plus 100 in profit, your average annual return is going to be 20%, right? It's 100% divided by five. The internal rate of return, if you actually calculate it, is probably going to be somewhere in the 14 to 16% range. And that's another mistake, too, is, is, and I have a lot of sponsors these days. This is, I apologize, this is a little bit one of my pet peeves. So if I, I'll get off my soapbox quick. But, you know, every I've, I've seen a trend lately of sponsors only advertising AAR. Well, why is that? Well, because AAR is the easiest number to make look good um, because it doesn't factor in timing. So if you're a sponsor, you should be looking for all, all the four key metrics, AAR, IRR, annual cash on cash, and equity multiple. Equity multiple is, well, if I put in $1, do I get one and a half back or two back or two and a half? All four of those None of them are bad. It's not bad to say, oh, this has a good AAR. You just have to look at all four to truly understand the full nature of the investment. You should never analyze just based on one. And it also depends on your goals and your business model. You might not care about annual cash flow. So you might just say, hey, I want AAR and I want equity multiple. And someone else could be the opposite. So um mezzanine debt, uh, that is when you go to typically an institution or a fund and you say, hey, you know, I'm getting a bank loan for 60% LTV. I don't want to bring 40% equity or I can't or whatever reason. And they give you excuse me. It's a second kind of the correlation is almost like getting a second mortgage on your house. So it's a it's a piece of debt that sits on top of the the, the primary loan, carries a much higher interest rate, and most importantly, comes with hooks meaning if the operator can't make the property hit certain targets and parameters so if they don't get their net operating income high enough if their debt sur- co- debt um, you know co- debt service coverage ratio is not high enough meaning there's you know take the the income divided by the mortgage is there enough to pay the mortgage and have some left over then in many cases those mezzanine debt people can come over and take over the deal and if that happens LP equity gone um, and they also get paid first so again not saying mez- mezzanine debt is necessarily bad or run away from anything that has it just make sure that you understand how it affects the mechanics of the deal
0: those are those are great explanations and I
1: appreciate that. Hi guys, my name is Vikram Raya. I'm CEO and co-founder of Viking Capital. And we believe that multifamily investing presents a significant opportunity for investors to build sustainable wealth and achieve financial freedom through diversification. We are backed by a team of seasoned real estate experts. We have deep financial analysis and data-driven processes for asset and property management. And this allows Viking Capital to leave no stone unturned in the pursuit of outstanding returns for our investors. Our investment strategy is anchored in identifying low-risk opportunities that offer significant value add potential, enabling us to preserve our investors' capital, all the while maximizing their long-term growth potential. Viking Capital has collectively raised over $250 million and currently has 5,000 doors under management. Learn more about all our current deal offerings at vikingmultifamily.com. Hi, this is Zach Happenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we've successfully purchased 38 different properties worth over $1.5 billion worth of real estate and gone full cycle and sold 11 different properties, drastically exceeding projections for our investors. If you're looking to invest with an experienced sponsor in either the Phoenix, Arizona or Dallas, Texas markets, then we're the group for you. To learn more about investing with us, visit our website at rise48equity.com and set up a call with me. Thank you.
0: I do want to get you back on your soapbox for just a minute and, (laughs) uh, you know, ask you what preferred returns, right? Those aren't always in the LP investors best interest. Why, why is that?
1: They aren't Um, because, and I think this is actually probably one of the more pervasive myths uh, in the syndication world in general, essentially what a preferred return and to, to define it real quick, you know, preferred return is basically saying, okay, the first X percent of profits or returns has to go to the LP investors before the sponsor can get anything, right? So let's just say 8% since that's a common number. What One of the many things that that does is it incentivizes the sponsor to do things that may or may not be in the best interest of the deal as a whole or the investors as a whole in order to achieve a higher IRR to get over the preferred return. And I'll give you, give, give some examples. So I mean, we mentioned IRR factors in the time value of money. So I've, I've seen many situations where a sponsor will either sell a deal early, because the quicker you sell it, the higher the IRR, uh, in order to achieve a really high IRR, because that again, the money came back quickly and so they easily clear the hurdle. Well, they can get paid faster and they can get paid more. But if they had just held on for two or three years, more or a little bit longer, the investor would have made almost double their money by holding that little bit longer period. So that's one. Um, I've also seen situations where a sponsor will do a bad refinance because again they can return some extra capital, they'll owe and 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 jack up the IRR and clear the hurdle, or it is in preferred returns, encourage over leveraging because the higher you leverage the property and reduce that LP position, the higher the IRR. So these are all things that the preferred return encourages the sponsor to do that are actually add risk to the LP position. Uh, Another one is, you know, and th- this is actually, you know, the last few years, this just didn't really seem to matter that much. But it's becoming really important now. And unfortunately, probably some of some of the left field investors are are in deals where distributions have stopped, or they're doing capital calls. Right. Well, if there's not enough money to clear the preferred return, now your sponsor is working for free. And if you've got a good sponsor who truly puts their investors first they're still going to say well that's just i you know what i knew that going in i took the risk i'm still going to do everything i can for that the, those investors but even a really good sponsor who that's their intention if they have too many deals where that sponsor is earning 0 dollars do you want somebody who's run, who's who's not making any income by running your investments running your investments how focused are they going to be able to be running running your investment if they ha- are having to go become an Uber driver just to pay the bills, or they have, or they have to go do deals they shouldn't be doing so they can earn an acquisition fee so they can survive for another six months, um, you know, those are just those are just some of the of the of the ways that that it can again it, it can set up a uh, a negative dynamic in a big bull market like we had for the last eight to ten years. It works out fine. But when things shift like they have, it actually causes uh, LPs and sponsors to um, have some conflicting interests.
0: So you mentioned, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but I kind of want to at least step into them. Um, (laughs) You you mentioned the IRR and preferred return and how they're related, right? That if you Mm -hmm. have a preferred return, you're incentivized to boost the IRR by getting out of the deal quickly. How, How does the preferred return do that. What is a preferred return that it causes someone to behave differently on uh, as regards the IRR and trying to boost it? Do, do you understand what I'm trying to yeah. say? Yeah,
1: so let's let's say a property has uh, is set up with an 8% preferred return. And the sponsor in, it's it's chugging along and it's producing 8% a year distributions, right? Which these days is not too bad, especially on a newer on a newer acquisition. Well, the sponsor or many spon- the, many sponsors are sitting there going wait a second. I'm doing a great job. This thing's distributing 8%. I'm getting paid nothing. And in reality for the investors, you know one of the the biggest wealth creation aspects of real estate is holding it long term. You know we've sold properties that we held 7 or 8 years for 4 and 5x multiples because we held them longer. Um, with the IRR, you know, as, as, you know, as, actually, I guess it was still in the twenties, but, <laughs> um, not, that <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, that was bull market. So what happens is, is if, if a sponsor has got a deal, that's, let's say again, just making enough to pay that 8% preferred return. And so the sponsor is not making anything, then w- what a sponsor can be incentivized to do. And again, hopefully a good sponsor wouldn't do this, but it's called, co- you know, we're talking about, uh, conflicting incentives. A sponsor would be like, okay, well, I can hold this for, we're two years in, I'm making everybody 8%, I'm making zero. I can hold this for three, four, five more years, continue to pay everyone 8% or maybe you know 10%, hopefully down the road if it keeps going well, and then someday I get paid five years if things don't change. Or if I sell right now, two years in, I sell for a profit, the IRR goes to 27 and as the sponsor, my carve-out kicks in, and I get the majority of the profits from this thing. And investors, okay, they came out with a 1.4X multiple, where if it had held for five or six years, they might have gotten three or four times their money instead. So that's that's yeah. one of the ways a preferred return sounds great up front, uh, but it can actually kind of backfire in the, in the big picture. And then one final thing, too, is... <laughs> there's and definitely not all but there's some folks out there that approach the sponsor as almost an adversary like i'm giving you my money and you better pay me first if that's your mentality you're probably in the wrong business because whatever sponsor you're investing with they are your partner for the next three years or five years or whatever the length of it is and you should not invest with anybody that you have any sense of adversarial relationship. You want to be, I say, you you are literally business partners, and you want to have a you know strong channels of communication and goodwill. And part of doing that is making sure that both of your interests are truly aligned, and that you, you know, when when one succeeds, both succeed.
0: Yeah, that, that's well said, and that's a good explanation. And and it you know part of the incentive. Too, for these sponsors is if you get out quick and have a high IRR, the returns might not be as good, but they look good when yes. you're then saying, hey, look at my historical performance. I have all these IRRs in the 20s and 30s. So that, that's a great explanation. I want to pivot real quick and talk about the current environment, right? Everyone knows interest rates went through the roof really quickly um, and insurance rates have gone up. So how does that affect your your business, the current properties you own, and perhaps ones that you're either thinking of selling or thinking of buying. What has the impact been?
1: It's been very significant, as as I'm sure all your you know uh, audience knows. Um, in terms of our current portfolio, it's actually had very little impact. Uh, the reason being, we, you know, we've, we currently manage about 1,500 units because, like I said, we've sold off roughly 1,200. Uh, however, starting in about, I think it was 2018, 2019, when everyone was kind of moving towards floating rate loans in order to make deals work, we reasoned, kind of took a different approach and we said, well, we are at the lowest interest rates in history. And we've been on a 40 year bond market bull run, which means interest rates have basically been coming down for 40 years. And we said, all right, statistically speaking, if we are at the lowest interest rates in history, the odds of rates being higher down the road are greater than the odds of rates being lower down the road. And so we did the opposite and we fixed everything. And because that we have fixed rate debt on our properties, we're fine. Um, our mortgage payments haven't changed, um, except for one asset uh, that we purchased October of 21, we had to get a bridge loan because uh, there, was a, there was a new construction element to it and Fannie won't, agencies won't, won't lend on that. Um, but fortunately, we got a three, we, we negotiated a three-year term with a cap. And so that property, the interest payments on that one did go up. Uh, and as soon as we saw, saw this coming, you know, a year or so ago, we said, uh, we apologize, everybody. The property is doing great. It's actually like ahead of pro forma but we have to pause distributions and build up reserves because we don't know where this is gonna go in a year and a half. So that property, our mortgage payments have gone up significantly. Uh, it does still cash flow. It doesn't, need, you know, we don't need to feed it any money. Uh, we've got about another uh, year plus to, to work, out a situ- uh, work out an exit. Right now, if we had to do something today, uh, we would either do a little bit of cash in refinance or because of our value add, we just had a broker opinion of value done on it. it is worth significantly more than we paid for it because we got such a good deal on it. So the, our worst case is we sell early and have a small return. Um, that's the only one that this current environment's affected us. The rest of uh, the portfolio is doing fine because we fixed it. And then again, getting back to preferred returns, we stopped doing those a few years ago when we kind of realized like, wait, this actually isn't a good thing. Be, you know those prop, the cash flow that we're sharing on those prop in the current portfolio is part of what lets us pay all of our bills, pay all of our expenses, keep our team employed, and then just only do deals when we should, not just because we can. And um, yeah, we've done one deal this year, and that's it because we can't find anything. So that gets into what, you know, how has it affected the market in general and acquisitions? We are generally fifteen to twenty percent below what the seller is looking for when we make an offer. If they're asking for twenty million, we might be offering sixteen uh, because we're we're looking you know looking at the current debt, we're factoring, well, what if cap rates go up even further? You know that 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 significantly impacts the the exit. And so, yeah, there's a huge gap uh, in what we can offer. In what sellers are looking for and that's not just us that's the majority of the market uh, volume right now is 25 percent of what it used to be uh, and i do think that's going to dramatically change in the near future i think it's going to start picking up in october november and then really pick up next year and man I, you know for anyone who's missed felt like they missed this last cycle or missed this big bull run i think 24 and 25 is going to be the t- opportunity to get in for the next big cycle uh, there's going to be some really good opportunities uh, long term. Fundamentals for multifamily are still solid, and there's going to be another upcycle once we get through this. And uh, we're we're gearing up to take advantage of it. So
0: that that's great. And I want to end on a positive note that 24, 25, 26 things are going to get better. So we appreciate that. The last question I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you listen to that you'd like to share with our community?
1: One of my favorite ones is called Macro Voices, and it's, it it focuses on macroeconomic uh, issues, uh, and not just even the United States. A lot of times they're talking about worldwide, and I don't think in the couple of years of listened to them, I don't know if they've even barely mentioned real estate, and definitely not multifamily. However, you know, they're you know our our apartments or whatever, you know, self storage, whatever you're investing in. It is like your invest, our investments are real estate are like a canoe in a giant river. in that river, that, that current is the overall economic climate. And so that's one of the reasons I try to stay abreast of the macro picture to know, to have a feel to try to have a good idea of where the overall current is going so that we can position ourselves within that to take best advantage of it.
0: Excellent. Thank you for that. I'll definitely check that one out. We'll put that in the show notes. So if listeners want to get in touch with you, learn more about vantage point acquisitions, what's the best way to do that?
1: I'm pretty active on LinkedIn these days. Uh, I'm not a Instagram, TikTok dancer or anything like that. Uh, but I, I do uh, do post on uh, on LinkedIn. And if you comment, I, I do personally reply to that. Uh, so yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn. And then our website, if you Google vantage point acquisitions or Andrew Cushman, Um, I'm told I somehow have good SEO. I don't know how that happened, but thankfully (laughs) I do. So it's always the top two pages of results. But if you go to the website, vpacq.com, there's a connect with us tab on there and um, you can uh, schedule a phone call through there. And uh, yeah, love to uh, meet some of the uh, left field investors.
0: Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes. Thank you for your time today, Andrew. This has been fascinating. We really appreciate you being on the show.
1: All right. Good talking to you, Jim. Take care. This is Chad Ackerman, the host of the LFI Spotlight podcast. As part of our growth here at Leftfield Investors, the LFI Spotlight is moving to its own podcast feed. So if you'd like to continue to hear stories, tips, and receive advice, be sure to subscribe to the LFI Spotlight podcast today. We'll see you in the spotlight. That was a fun podcast.
0: talking to andrew there are a lot of really good nuggets that i got out of that you know his superpower he says is relentless persistence and you know who doesn't want that in someone that they're giving their money to that they're just going to relentlessly persist and and get the deals done in a positive way so that's great and and he showed that right when he's getting into flipping houses and he made 4500 plus calls before he was successful but he knew that others had had success at this so he stuck to it and look what happened. He had a successful flipping business that turned into a successful syndication business. And, you know, he talked also, I love this, about R and D for real estate, it's rip off and duplicate. And I love that because there's so much in real estate that you don't really have competitors, even the operators, you have their competitors, but they also work together. They also steal each other's ideas in a good way and and duplicate them. And that's what we do at Left Field Investors as well. You know, if I find someone that's doing something cool or exciting or just great, I'm gonna ask him, hey, tell me how to do that. I'm gonna rip it off and duplicate. So that's my R&D, love that. I also like an operator who is willing to talk about his worst deal. In fact, when I uh, was reaching out to him and I said, hey, what are some things you wanna talk about? He said, I'd like to talk about my worst deal. And that just shows you that he's willing to learn, adapt, and understand what he's doing. So that's fantastic. You know, the preferred return conversation was super interesting because he's right, it does incentivize operators to sell earlier than than they otherwise would. And throughout this long bull market we've had, people were flipping properties, flipping multifamilies in two, three years. And he's saying, hey, hold it a little bit longer and you'll be better off at the end. So that's not always the case, but that is sometimes the case. And so you just have to do on a, you know, case by case basis. And then Andrew is so, forward thinking, right? He switched to multifamily because he did an analysis and said, we're coming out of a recession. Multifamily is going to boom. And he was right. And then, you know, 2018-19, he said, "Lower, lowest interest rates we've had forever. They have to go up. So he switched to fixed rate debt. Both of those were they they paid off right he predicted where things were going and now he's saying multifamily is going to boom in 25 and 26 is he right i don't know we'll find out but he's had some right calls in the past so that might be something to look out for so i had a great time talking to him and found out he's a he's a skier so offline we had a nice conversation too so really looking forward to get to know andrew better that's all we have for this time we'll catch you next time in the left field Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.